Hey, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. So we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and I think we're just going to keep on going through that and uh, finish up the book of Acts through Easter. We'll have to probably, Easter will take a break, Palm Sunday and Easter will take a break um, from that and then jump back into it. All right. So um, Andy talked about, a couple weeks ago, he talked about the life of uh, Stephen. There, a great message there. And then last week we looked at the life of Philip. Both of these men, both of these men were selected to wait on tables to help these women. It was a dis- daily distribution. We don't know if it was food or if it was money, but it was to help these widows that had come to Jerusalem uh, after their husbands had passed away. And there was a system in place that would help them, provide for them until they themselves would pass away. All right? And it wasn't just for any widow. It was for widows that had lived, lived a godly life and uh, they had a good reputation, good character. They were known for serving other people. And um, so they were put on a list and the church had a way of taking care of them. It's actually that early church and the Jewish culture then. All right. So these seven men were chosen. Philip and Stephen are two of them. They were known as people that were men of character and that were full of the Holy Spirit. And we see that as they lived their life. We see the boldness of Stephen to, to preach the word of God even in the midst of hostility that he stood there and he shared Christ, even though it cost him his life. And we think, wow, you know, maybe Stephen, you should have just backed it off a little bit. You ever read that part and kind of thought, Stephen, maybe just kind of tone it down a little bit. They're getting pretty upset. Um, But we don't know how his life impacted the life of who we would call Paul. We don't know, right? And so that's who we're going to look at today. Uh, Where we pick up with it, he is called Saul. And then he would change his name. He actually, one was a Roman name, one was a more of a Hebrew name, all right? Um, and so we are going to look at that, and we're going to k- go 1 through 31. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 first, uh, looking at this. So just a little bit of a backstory. In Acts chapter 7 is when Paul will give his blessing. He's called Saul there. Stephen gives a speech, and Saul is there. He gives his blessing to Stephen being stoned. They, the people that actually carry that out put their cloaks or jackets at Saul's feet. He gives his blessing. So he maybe wasn't the one throwing the stones, but he was, it was by his authority and his blessing that Stephen, his life was taken. All right? And then that just gives more fuel to the fire, and they begin going house to house, if there's people that are any way connected that they are aware of, connected to following Christ, called the way, then they would uh, be drug off, taken to prison, and thrown in jail. All right? And now Saul has been emboldened even more, and he gets letters of authority, and he's going to go to Damascus. And um, that's where his life is going to be changed. So before we go in dive into this, let's bow our head in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the word of God that is able to speak life into us. It is the living word of God. And so, Lord God, allow it to change us, shape us, mold us, speak to us, we pray, Lord God. um, Let your Holy Spirit be here to take these words and make them come alive. In your name we pray, amen. Verses 1 through 9, 
chapter 9 of Acts. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Wow, that sounds kind of ominous, right? So murderous, not just threats saying, hey, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do a lot of harm to you. Um, Yeah, he's breathing out these threats. And he went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that was the places of worship for the Jewish people in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, so that was those who were following Christ, many of them had left Judaism to follow Christ, embrace him, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Jesus is appearing to him. Now, Paul will give this account um, in two other places in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 22, if you want to write that down. If you have footnotes in your Bible, it probably references that. And then also Acts 26. And so in each account, he tells the story just a little bit differently. Okay, And so that's not a big deal because when you tell a story, you often share different facts and details whenever you share it, right? It depends on your audience and who you're talking to, right? And so what we do know is that the light shines, comes down from heaven. It's very bright. Not only does Paul see it, but also the people that are with him. They all see it, and they all hear a sound, but only Paul is able to understand what Jesus is saying. Okay? His companions that are with him cannot understand what he is saying, but Saul does. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Wow. So Saul is just brought to this place of submission. He's lost his sight. All right. Whether the light blinded him, um, that almost seems like what happened, uh, as we'll see later. Um, but something happens to his eyes. There's a, there's a covering over his eyes so that he cannot see. The man traveling with Saul s- stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anybody. And Saul got up from the ground, and, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see nothing. He could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind. And he did not eat anything. All right, so Saul's in this very place where he is, it's a pretty, uh, pretty ominous moment, right? Where God gets his attention, right? Takes away his vision. Um, he, now he has to be led around by hand because he doesn't know where he's going. And it's kind of like now, and even there's just the vision uh, of Jesus coming and speaking to him, um, I think Paul doesn't know what to do. We know that Saul, I'm kind of using those interchangeably, was well-educated. He, he knew several different languages. He had a dual citizenship, um, Jewish and Roman. He was a strong leader. He was driven. He was ze- very zealous for what he believed in. Those can be very good qualities when they're directed in the right way, right? And if you had asked the apostles in the early church, who is the most unlikely person that you think could be saved? And they would have probably said, who? Saul. Man, 
You saw what he did to Stephen. You've seen what he's doing to the other believers. Man, there's just no hope for Saul. Yet God had other plans. He had earned the title of being the persecutor of those following Christ. And while others thought that Saul would never be saved and maybe never even cross their mind, Saul was in the crosshairs of God. God was pursuing him. We don't know how the death of Stephen impacted Saul, but it was Saul that had this powerful encounter on this road to Damascus, and his life is forever changed. And I mean forever changed because he would leave that moment, and years later then he would go on these missionary journeys, as we'll see in the book of Acts. Um, he will be stoned himself and left for dead. Okay? Um, he would be uh, flogged. He would be persecuted. Um, you read the list of things that Paul would have to endure, and yet he never gave up. He never quit. So for three days, Saul is blind. He did not eat or drink. God, I believe, was working in his life. And the first thing that we see is that the pursuit of God is your salvation. The pursuit of God is your salvation. Now, I, when I grew up, I believed that um, me accepting Christ was all my decision. Okay, that comes out of the Wesleyan movement, right? The Methodist, that conversion. And that is very true. We, I believe, still believe in that where I make a decision for Christ. But what I have learned, the longer I pastor, the more I learned that, yeah, people come to that place of decision where they invite Christ into their life. But if you look back over their life, God has been working in their life to draw them, to bring them to that place and to that moment. Look at your own life. And look at the life of others. Maybe there was a praying grandma and grandpa that was praying for them. Or maybe there was a neighbor or a relative that reached out to that person and brought them in. Maybe it was just totally the sovereignty of God working in their life. Um, what is very apparent is that Saul's conversion is that God was pursuing Saul. Right? Saul did not find God on his own. God was pursuing him. Now, did Saul still have a choice? He probably did. He could have left that moment and said, you know what? You blinded me. Uh, no way am I going to accept you. But the opportunity was there. God got his attention. He says, I'm going to follow you. Our salvation is, yes, a choice of free will. But I believe you also see the sovereignty, what I call the sovereignty of God. Without God's grace and sovereignty reaching out to us, I don't believe any of us could be saved. Amen? Because God extended his grace to us, his mercy. I think about Olivia's in the nursery, I think, today. And Olivia and Zoe are usually here on Sundays, but also on Wednesdays. And um, you can't miss Olivia with her red hair, right? But, I, you know, if you've been at the church very long, you, you remember that they started attending the church when they were about this big. And they would run around the church. And sometimes they were little, you know, rascals, right? Um. But somebody, a neighbor, brought them to church. Said, hey, there's these young kids. Uh, can I bring them to church? We picked them up. They started coming on Wednesdays. And now, you know, Olivia's a freshman and, and Zoe's in junior high. And they're serving in the church, uh, following Christ. But I, I just look at that, the sovereignty of God that was at work in their life, that God orchestrated that somebody said, hey, you know what? Here's a couple young ladies that 
don't have a church family and invited them and brought them to church. And that person doesn't attend here anymore. But God brought them into this place and the sovereignty of God. To be saved, we must all have that encounter with the resurrected Christ. It is our choice, but I believe God is working. He's pursuing us. You know, maybe you were raised in a Christian home. I, I had a great opportunity. My folks did not have that. The, there was some um, Christianity there, but they both came from alcoholic homes, and um, there just wasn't a lot of things there. But God worked in both of their lives to bring them to Christ. I think I shared this last week. It was my dad's older brother that kind of reached out to him, and it was uh, my mom and her three, uh, there's three young ones, um, a sister and a brother, that um, a pastor, a rural pastor, just stopped by. He also delivered fuel to all the, the farmhouses, and uh, he invited them to church, brought them to church. That's how they came to know Christ. They all went to Bible school. The, the brother ended up becoming a minister. Um, the sovereignty of God, but also that free will. I always enjoy hearing how people came to know Christ and put their faith in Him. Um, no story is quite the same, is it? We all have our story. You know what? And I think that's an important thing to share your story. You think, you know, how do I share Christ with somebody? You know, do I have to have this three, four-point plan? Well, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you kind of maybe sound a little bit like a salesperson there, right? But I think just tell your story with people. I think that is so powerful. And they say like if you're witnessing to somebody, especially that is uh, like a Jehovah Witness or something like that, the most powerful thing you can do is to share your story of how you came to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But through the life of the account of Saul, we see that the pursuit of God is your salvation. He is pursuing you. And I have an illustration at the end of a story that will will tie this in even stronger. All right. Secondly, verses 10 through 19. Let's read that. It says, For in Damascus, in Damascus there was a disciple. His name was Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias is saying, hey, I don't think I'm going. But verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, exclamation mark. You ever had God say, go, right? It's not a suggestion, right? Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. There's something special about Saul, and he's going to be my instrument to take the gospel to other worlds. So Philip was kind of that first missionary, but I think one of the greatest missionaries of all time was probably Paul. That he went to these uncharted places where the gospel had never been preached, and he went to the Jews and he went to the Gentiles and he shared Christ. 
and um, Ephesus and so much of modern day Turkey was touched. And then you go into Corinth and Athens and Greece that were touched by the ministry of Paul. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Amen. God did not leave Saul in his desperate state, he, but he immediately didn't take a, renew uh, his eyesight right away. Three days he sat there thinking about where his life had been and what he had done. And now he encounters the person that he had been persecuting. He meets Christ face to face. And so God sends Ananias. Ananias obeys God. He prays for Saul, and his sight is restored. The second principle I see there is the pursuit of God is your healing. The pursuit of God is your healing. You know, some, just because somebody commits their life to Christ doesn't mean life is perfect. The scars of the past can be pretty deep and paralyzing unless we experience God's healing over our mind and over our heart. Whether the scars of the past were our own doing, or whether they happened at the hands of others. God is able to heal and restore. And as Ananias prayed for Saul, there was a healing and restoration that took place. You know, think about it. His eyesight was restored, right? But Paul would have to live the rest of his life knowing that he was a... Anybody guess? Murderer. Think about that. How would, how, would, how would that impact your life to know that you t- were responsible for taking the life of an innocent person and now you're following Christ yourself and realize that this person was a fellow believer in Christ and you were responsible for taking their life and to live with that. Those are some things you need healing for. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to move forward in God. Amen? God had to restore that. He had to... to re- to heal that so that he could not be paralyzed and that he could move forward. So while God healed his eyes, I believe there was also healing that took place in his heart and his mind. Amen? And maybe your scars stem from drug or alcohol addiction. Maybe it, it, it includes broken relationships. Maybe it's thoughts that you can't scrub your mind from. You fill in the blank. You all have your own story. We were watching the Chosen series. If you haven't watched that, I really encourage you to watch that. And my folks hadn't seen it, so we watched the first three. And in the first three is the story of Mary of Magdala, right? You see her as a young lady interacting with her father. And then the next time you see her, she is um, she's demon-possessed, and nobody can control her, and she's out of control, and she, she's tormented by these demons, and nobody can heal her, and even they send Nicodemus. Now, this isn't in Scripture, so this is part of where they take some... Uh, you know, some license there, right? It's nothing wrong against Scripture, but uh, it very well likely could have happened that they sent somebody, a religious person there, to cast out the demons and nothing happens, right? But there's that moment where she encounters Jesus and he prays for her and she's set free. 
She's set free, right? She's, and then when they see her, she's in her whole mind. She's there. She's happy. She's joyous. She's set free from things that had held her captive. Amen? And I just think about that God comes to restore and to heal and to set us free. Body, soul, and mind. He wants to bring healing. Um, it's a powerful thing. I encourage you to go back and watch that episode. I think it's two. I'm not sure, though. All right? Number three, let's look at verses 19 through 31. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And when we read through this, kind of understand that it, we're reading through it just like this, but I think there's a little more spatial time that's taking place here, okay? But he spent several days in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So there's not much. He just kind of jumps right into ministry. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. They kind of put yourself in their place, right? I mean, Saul, the last time you saw him, he was persecuting Christians, and Stephen was killed. And now he's coming back claiming to be a disciple and a follower of Christ. And they kept him at a distance, but verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, how in Damascus he had preached fiercely in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved more freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him too. When the believing believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. That's where he was born and raised. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Isn't that funny? I think there's some humor in the Bible. Now that Saul was gone, there was peace. And the church was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the church increased in numbers. The third principle is the pursuit of God is your spiritual maturity. Your spiritual maturity. Now, if you go into Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Paul gives a little more detailed account of what would happen from his conversion until his time when he would take his first missionary journey. And it wasn't days and it wasn't weeks. It wasn't months. It was actually years. 11 to 14 years would take place before Paul would do his first missionary journey. God would be then be perfecting in his life and disciple. You can tell here that he definitely wasn't lacking in zeal, right? And he, was, he knew the scriptures. Now they, they made sense to him, right? But he still had to, learn, he had to learn how to maybe some people skills there, right? How can you talk to people without wanting them to kill you, right? Right? <laughs> um, you know, it's not like a, you know, a Nintendo game where you got three lives, right? You only got one life. Um, how can I persuade and communicate to people so that they'll listen and hear? And 
I believe that the pursuit of God is our maturity, our spiritual maturity. God wants to put the things in place in our life so that we grow and we mature. We become more like Him. To make this happen in Saul's life, he provided a man named who? Barnabas. You know what? I think we all need a Barnabas in our life. I don't know what the female version of Barnabas would be, but um, we all need a Barnabas. Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. Somebody there. You know, Barnabas believed in Saul when nobody else did. Everybody else says, no, we don't trust him. But Barnabas trusted him and says, hey, this guy's okay. And he, he was instrumental in Saul growing and maturing and becoming who God had called him to be. The next time we really read about Saul, now called Paul, is in Acts chapter 13. And there he would be with Barnabas and they would be in the church called Antioch in the north. And it is there in a prayer meeting that God would speak to the believers there and say, hey, I want you to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And so they would go on their first missionary journey into what is Galatia back then. It would be Turkey today. And they would go and they would minister. Um, Barnabas would not go on the other ones because they would have a falling out, but later they would be restored and get work thing, things worked out. But we know that there was a time of period, 11-ish years, that would take place where Paul would have a chance to grow and mature in his faith and his walk with God before God would say, okay, now's the time. I'm setting you apart. And I want you to be that chosen vessel that I've called you to be. You know, in our microwave society, we want things done right now, right? God, you've called me, you've saved me, I'm ready to go, right? And yet God takes time to work in our lives to shape and mold us into who he's called us to be. You know, God loves you the way you are, but he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants you to become more like him, to grow in your spiritual maturity and in your faith. That means he may have to rough, knock off some of the rough edges. That may, means you maybe have to become more of a student of God's word. Maybe it means that you have to know what it is to have a prayer life and to seek God. You know, watching that Chosen series again, they have a couple snapshots where he He's out in the wilderness and he's praying. And I just thought, you know what? Jesus had a very intense prayer life. And he was the son of God. And it just challenged me as a follower. There's so many times that I can just get, I go with what I know and what I've learned. And it's too easy to depend upon those things instead of just that prayer life and walking with God. Prayer, yes, prayer. We go to prayer, I think, too many times just to get what we want instead of just to have fellowship with God and to seek His face. And if Jesus had to pray to minister powerfully before people would be effective, how much more do you and I need to pray? Amen? I think about even just this Easter time, when we got these prayer cards. Yeah, write the peop names down, but pray. You know what? I, you may think, you know what? There's no way. This person is a Saul. There's no way. You know, I encourage you to write down, maybe you got some easy picks there, right? Oh, yeah, I think they can be, I think they can come to know Christ. Put some Saul's down there too. People that you think are the most unlikely person that could ever come to know Christ and begin praying for them. Amen? Amen. Put their name down. 
And let's believe God because it's not us. It's God working in their lives. I mean, if he needs to send a bright light from heaven to blind them and whatever, maybe he'll send you to pray for them, right? And that the scales can fall off their eyes. Yeah, who knows? Maybe they would be God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to people that you cannot reach. You know, somebody led Billy Graham to the Lord, right? I believe it was a shoe guy, showed, sold shoes. I hope I got my story right there. But somebody led him to Christ, right? And shared Christ with him. God loves you. I'm going to have the musicians come. The pursuit of God is you. The pursuit of God. Now, maybe when you read that title, you thought of the pursuit of God. Maybe my pursuit of God. The pursuit of God is you. It's your salvation. It's your healing. It's your spiritual maturity. In, in 1890, 1890, in England, there's a man named Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson, right? Was your mom, is there English there, Thompson? Is it? Uh, Francis Thompson was his name. Young man. That's when he was 19. Pretty sharp young guy. He came to, from a well-to-do home, comfortable lifestyle. But he got involved in opium. Okay? Maybe the Oxycontin of today. Uh, got involved in opium, drug addiction. And it took him from where he was, a writer, um, a life with a lot of potential. And he, it took him to where he was living in the streets of London, the alleys, um, addicted to drugs, destitute. Um, but he wrote a poem in 1890. It's called The Hound of Heaven. And it describes how God pursued him even in his unredemptive state, in his brokenness and his addiction. God pursued him and eventually brought him out. You know, if you're familiar with um, a bloodhound, right? They use them for getting raccoons and stuff like that, right? Um, and they get on that trail and they're pretty good at it. They're, they're going to follow that raccoon and tree him and then the hunter will get him, right? But Francis Thompson kind of uses that same imagery that God is the hound of heaven and he's on your trail. He's pursuing you. He loves you. He's on your trail. You can say, I can run from him, but I think God's faster. And because God eventually is going to catch up with you like he did with Saul on the road to Damascus. He'll catch up to you. Um, and maybe that's your story. Or maybe somebody's listening this morning. Maybe that's your story. There's a lot of great stories in history and still being written today of how God is pursuing people and drawing them to himself. Amen. Would you stand this morning? I'm just going to lead us in a prayer of salvation and just a prayer that God would just place his spirit within us. Father, we come to you this morning. We just see in Scripture that you pursued us, that you sent your Son to die on the cross, that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. And God, you pursue us with your grace, with your love, your mercy that you pour out on us. 
God, you put people in our pathway that share Christ with us. Maybe it was a believing mom and dad that shared Christ, or maybe it was a neighbor, or maybe we got to the rock bottom and and you put somebody in our pathway that led us to Christ. And maybe there's somebody listening today or here today, Lord God, that just maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ because it's not where it needs to be. Or maybe you don't know Christ. You've never asked Him into your life. You know of God, but you don't have a personal relationship with Him. The Scripture is very clear that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. And if we do that this morning, by faith, Scripture is clear that we will be saved. And so, Lord God, uh, I encourage everybody here today to do that this morning. And Lord God, I, I pray that Your Spirit is upon our life. And as we uh, even draw closer to Easter, Lord, it's just an, a window, an opportunity where sometimes people are open to the gospel. They're open maybe to come into church or just open to hearing a gospel presentation. And Lord, I pray that at this moment that you can guide and direct your people to understand how you are working in the lives of people and to understand that, yeah, there may be souls in our world, but they're not unreachable, that your grace is greater, your love is greater, your compassion is greater, your power is greater. Lord God, to make us a people of prayer that seek your face and believe you to draw these people into you, to know you as their Lord and their Savior. Because a Saul can make a pretty good witness. And a Saul, once redeemed, can change the world for your glory and your honor. And so, Lord God, stir within our hearts a passion for the world around us. We give you the thanks. We give you the praise. In your name. Amen. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. You know, Paul, I think once he came to know Christ, he'll say this in Galatians, Philippians. It's escaping me, it's Philippians. He said, You know what? I have a lot of accomplishments, a lot of accolades. It's chapter 3 of Philippians. But whatever my gains were, you know, he had the right pedigree, he had zeal, he persecuted the church, he, he lived a righteous life in the eyes of the world. But he says, whatever there were gains to me, I can now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that comes through His faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on a basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participate in His sufferings, becoming like Him even in His death, and to somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to know Christ. Amen? Amen. Hey, God bless you this morning. Greet each other as you leave. And uh, see you next Sunday. Amen.